Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is so good. I know. Uh, oh, I love the response. It's so good. Um, uh, I know Thomas already welcomed you, but I want to welcome you as well if we've not met yet. Uh, my name is JP. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's such an honor to uh, spend this Sunday morning with you, whether we're here together in person or whether we're watching or you're, we're online together right now. Uh, we want to honor and thank all of you for joining us. You know, last week um, on Friday, uh, August 6th, we celebrated um, Elise's sixth birthday, uh, which is super exciting. Um, and so we wanted to do something um, pretty special for it. And so we ended up going to the San Diego Zoo. Uh, we had gotten passes years ago, um, and then obviously we haven't gone in a few years. And we got to go back. And what's interesting about the zoo, and I think the safari park too, but there's always, um, there's always some parts of the zoo that are new, and they're always working on stuff, always adding things and changing things. One of the things that they changed that I noticed um, is their logo. So we're going to put a, a screen up here. Um, we'll hold on this, keep it on this for a couple moments. Um, I, I know not all of you are as into this as I am into design, and I like design. I can't do it, but I appreciate it, kind of like how I am with music and sports and a myriad of other things I can't do. But I love that this one is, for example, it's like when you first look at it, you see the lion, right? But then in the corner, you can see the rhino. Do you see the rhino in the bottom right? And then you see the condor in the top left. For those of you who are watching online, hopefully it's clear. Those of you who are listening on the podcast, I apologize because I know that this is, you know, you can just make it up in your mind. But no, you can type in San Diego Zoo logo and you can get an idea of what we're looking at here. Um, but it's really creative. And what it is in, in design, if you give me a, a moment here, what the rhino and the condor, they are what's called like a negative space. So what that means is that it's not specifically designed as part of the main thing, but there's a your eye fills in the gap and you can see a shape or you could see something that isn't originally there. It's not just a lion, it's a lion with a rhino with a condor. So there's multiple layers. And we have a few more of these logos I wanna show because I'm fascinated by this idea of how the contrasting of negative space reveals more intentionality and intricacy and design um, and meaning. And so let's go to the next one we have here is FedEx. Um, many of you may know this one already, so if you do, uh, don't, don't give it away. But if you look at this, we see it all the time on, those, uh, on stores or on the, um, on the sides of trucks. But if you go to the next slide, go ahead and click the next slide, you'll see that there's an arrow in between the E and the X. How many of you, saw, how many of you knew about that beforehand? How many of you now will never be able to unsee it now that you look at it? It's going to be so clear from now on. Like, oh, look, there's an arrow. Um, there's another one that I want to share. Again, because of the contrast of the negative space and the positive space, it's different. This one's called eight fish. How many of you see four fish right off the bat, the gold ones? Now, do you see in the negative space between those gold ones, do you see the, the background is another fish so that there's four facing one way and four facing the other? Do you see all eight fish now? Again, the contrast provides depth of meaning and intentionality. Now, this last one I think is very, I mean, all these are done well. This one I really appreciate. So the Hope for African Children Initiative. In the negative space, in the white space, it's Africa, the continent. But in the colors, you see it's a child on the left-hand side and the orange and an adult on the right-hand side. Emphasizing the design to show there's hope for children, right? And it's children and adults and connecting them, but then also having Africa right in the middle. See, in design, when something is well designed, you can see that even in the contrast, it has meaning. 
What we're going to unpack today as we close our series through um, the Lord's Prayer is that we're going to unpack a parable today that at first glance might be difficult for us to, to navigate. In fact, at first glance, it seems like it's saying some pretty negative things about God. But when something's well-designed, like God's word, and specifically Jesus telling a parable from the mouth of our Lord, he gives this parable. So when something's well-designed, we can see that there's intentionality in the contrast. And so what I want to introduce to you is this quote by Norval uh, Gelden don't. He's not here, so I don't know how, if that's how you spell, uh, pronounce it, but I'm going to go for it. And as someone who has a last name that's hard to spell or how to pronounce, I feel for him, but that's okay. Um, a parable of contrast, because we're going to look at a parable where it contrasts someone in the parable and God and how that impacts us. A parable of contrast is one in which, quote, certain features are portrayed, which are in sharp contrast with other features, so that by this means the main truth is powerfully delineated. That's the theologian fancy way of saying that in the contrast, we can see depth of meaning and intentionality. And so Jesus will paint a picture for us through this parable that seems a little maybe hard for us to take at first, but it's only because the meaning that he has is in the contrast, not purely in what we read at surface value. With that said, will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us in this place, wherever here is, whether we are watching online, whether we are um, here in person, God, we thank you that you are ever present and that you meet us here. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that as we unpack this parable, this passage together, may we not just look at the surface, but may we see in the contrast what you would have us to learn about you and how we can um, learn to pray with you and to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning. Now, Luke chapter 11... Uh, the first four verses are very similar to Matthew 6. So if you're newer with us or you're just joining us in this series, we've spent the past several weeks, most of the summer, uh, going through uh, Matthew chapter 6. And we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and taking it line by line, verse by verse, concept by concept. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to look at Luke chapter 11 in a moment. But before we go on the screen, I want to read uh, verse 1 to you. Because our title for the sermon today is called Teach Us to Pray. And the reason it's called Teach Us to Pray is because it's out of this request the disciples make to Jesus that he gives us the Lord's Prayer, and then he gives us this parable. So verse 1, it's not on the screen, but it'll just say, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Then if you're following along in Luke 11, the next three verses, verses 2, four, two 3, and 4, excuse me, talk about the Lord's Prayer. It's a, shortened, a slightly shortened version than the Matthew 6 one, but it's, it's, the, it's got the same concepts there. And then we unpack, he doesn't just give us, again, the words to say, he gives a parable or a story to illustrate the meaning of what he's trying to say. So starting in verse 5, here's the unpacking the meaning. So we're going to read this a few different times and highlight a few different things. So the first time we read it says this, John, uh, excuse me, Luke 11, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Let's keep that up on the screen for a moment. This is something where 
The hospitality code was so vital in this culture that in ancient Near East, which is where Israel is and, the, the, and that area, hospitality is of the utmost importance. And we see hospitality as a running theme throughout God's word. But what we notice in this is that this man, first off, the one who did the knocking, who says, I need help, there was a traveler who came to him in the middle of the night. Why is he traveling in the middle of the night? Well, he's traveling in the middle of the night because the heat is so strong in this area that it was common for travelers to say, I'm going to wait till nightfall and I'm going to travel and try to find a place to sleep once I get to my destination or whether I, once I get to a settlement in which I can rest. And so the traveler comes and he goes to the host and, and he knocks on the door. And as a host, the host would be expected to provide a place, a place to sleep and food to eat and rest for the journey. And so, but the host realizes he, ha, he does not have enough food. Now this would be, uh, it would just be a very, it, not just a social faux pas, I mean this would be devastating to the code of hospitality, to the idea of welcoming people in. And so when he comes and he says, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. He is making a bold request in the middle of the night knocking on the door to say, can you help me? Can I get a cup of sugar? Or not really, but can I get bread to fulfill the code of hospitality? Here's what verse 7 says as we continue the parable. And suppose the one inside, so this is the one that's on the inside of the house that's being knocked. The one, suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Keep it up on there for a moment, but as we sit here, as we, as we sit on this verse, um, you know, I don't know about, about you all. Uh, I know that there was a time where hospitality was so great that, you know, when I was younger and, like, people would knock on the door, like, I'm like, oh, it's friends, and they want to go play, and I would open the door, and we want to do that. And now, it's like if someone knocks on the door, it's like, everybody be quiet. <laughs> Pretend like we're not home. This is especially true, even if you're more extroverted and more of a, just a better person than I am. Um, if, even if that's you, have you ever been in a moment where it's Halloween night and you're home and you have no candy? What do you do? You turn off the lights and pretend you're not there because you don't, you know, what, like what else are you going to give? Because, you know, what are you going to do? It's like, oh, here's some carrot sticks. And I'm like, thanks. And so recognizing that it's when the knock on the door happens, this man is like, don't bother me. It's the equivalent of saying, hey, the porch lights are out. It's Halloween. I'm not home. I mean, I am, but I don't want you to know that I am. It's saying the children are in bed. The door is locked. See, this man would have lived in a, a small enough abode that there wasn't multiple places. And so for him to go from where he was sleeping to where the door was would wake up the kids. He would unlock the door, wake up the kids. And if you've had young children, currently have young children, or remember what it's like to have young children, once kids are asleep, you do not want to do anything to risk that dynamic changing. And so, you know, it's like the girls, they'll go to sleep, and we, we, we got a puppy recently, about six months ago now, actually, and, like, the puppy just out of nowhere will just start barking, right? Like, and I'm like, it's the middle of the night, and I'm like, if you wake up these children, <laughs> this is especially true when it's a newborn, right? Like I would rock Shaylin and I would like rock her in the chair and then I try to do the swaying and the shushing and it's really great and she's asleep. 
And like she had this sixth sense or whatever it is that whenever I try to put her down, she felt gravity and like try to like wake right up, right? And I'm like, no, you were asleep, go back to sleep. Apparently commanding someone to go back to sleep doesn't work. Um, but it's this moment of the kids are in bed, we're sleeping. Our home is quiet, our home is calm. If I get up to help you, I'm gonna have to put these kids back to bed again. I'm going to have to get settled. And some of us are blessed to be able to fall asleep right away in the middle of the night. Some of us are not blessed in that same way and are up for hours. This is no small task to be able to help this traveler, excuse me, the host out. And so the traveler is like, or the the host is like, I don't want to do this. He continues on. Yet, oh, excuse me, verse 8. I tell you, even though he, again, the man inside the house, will not get up and give you the bread because of the friend, your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So the, the story is, if we look at this as face value, what we often do with parables, um, I do this, and I think we, we, we just tend to do this, is we look at a parable as a way that we think it's a very direct um, comparison Remember, comparison is similarities, contrasting is differences. We look for very similar comparisons between who we are in the story, who God is, and what that looks like. So, for example, in the story of the the parable of the lost son, we know that we are sinful. So we know that we go away from the father at times. And we know that because of that, there's ramifications and consequences for our sin. And then we, we know that when we come back, when we confess, when we ask for forgiveness, our Heavenly Father, God, he brings us back in. He welcomes us back into the family. He shows us our value. He loves us, and he makes us sons and daughters again. So when we read that story, it's we are the son. God is the father. Now let's take that same comparison mindset to this parable. Let's, Jesus says, suppose you are someone who is asking for help. So he tells us which person we are in the story. We are the one who's the host, who's going to the house to ask for help because we're out of bread. So suppose you do that. And then we would say, well, God is the father who um, welcomes the son back in. Well, then God must be the one who answers the request in this passage. God must be the one that gives the request that we have because Jesus is talking about prayer. And so if we believe that, then we start to believe some difficult things about God's character. Because let's unpack what the man in the parable does and what that might teach us if we look at it just as a comparison. What that might teach us about God and his character. So we're going to look at verse... uh, we're going to look at uh, one of the verses again, so let's pull it up here. And I highlighted a couple sections here in verse 7. Suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. Don't bother me. If we were to look at that, the man in the parable, I'm going to do a, a list of c- contrasting between the two. So um, on the next slide, we have columns that the man in the parable doesn't, or he can't be bothered. He can't be bothered. He says, don't bother me, I don't want that. It's like if you, have, uh, if you go somewhere and, and someone's working, maybe they're having a bad day, and you ask for help, and you, know, you go to a department store, you say, can you tell me where you know, this section is? And they go, oh, fine, I guess. Or, oh, it's around the corner. Like, and it's like, oh, I just can't even be bothered to help right now. We've all had bad days like that. That's not a judgment call, but that's recognizing there are times when we feel like, oh, I just can't be bothered with this. And 
Imagine what happens if we think that when we pray to God, he's like that man. Imagine if we think, ah, God is sitting there in his house of blessing, and we're asking for something. He's like, ah, I don't want to, don't bother me. What does that tell us about God if we try to purely equate the man in the parable to God? Well, it doesn't seem to show that God wants to hear our prayers. In fact, it may make us feel like praying to him is a burden to him. He says, don't bother me. Secondarily, in the verse that after that, it talks not just don't bother me. The next part says, the door is already locked. In other words, the man in the parable, he wants to stay behind the closed door. He doesn't want to open up. He doesn't want to offer the gift or the request. So on the next column, you'll see number two talks about how he wants to stay behind the door. Don't bother me. Don't inconvenience me. It's such a burden to help you. If we think that's what God thinks about us, why would we pray? If we think that's what God thinks about us, we will give up prayer because we don't want to bother God. Have you ever had these times when you're struggling with something or you have a prayer request and you feel like your prayer request is so small and you think to yourself, God, I don't want to, I'm really having a hard time with maybe it's the situation at school or the difficult relationship at work, but you know that there are people who are starving in other places of the world or you know there are people who are facing grave illnesses and you think, I don't even want to, I don't want to pray my prayer, it feels so small, as if God can't be bothered, as if it's, oh, he's going to stay behind. He's not going to answer my prayer anyway. Again, we need to unpack this because this is not how God is, but if we misunderstand how to apply the parable and how to um, understand it, we might think something false about our loving Father. Number three, we continue the next part of the verse. We highlight the idea that even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship. See, the man in the parable, number three on, your, on, your, on the column there, on the next slide, will say, the man in the parable is not moved by the relationship he has. He, it doesn't matter if they're close or not. He's like, I'm not going to help you because we're neighbors or friends. Imagine if that's what we thought about God that we think he's not going to help us. And even though those of us who follow God and are trusted in him, we call, we call him Lord, we call him Savior, we call him Father, if we misapply this parable, we will think that we can't bother him. We will think that he wants to withhold answering prayer and shut us out because the door's closed. And we'll think that he's not moved because we're his kids. These are three things that the person does in the parable that are not like our God. And yet, if we misunderstand it, we may fall into the trap of thinking that, and then we think something harsh about our loving Father. We go to the next slide, and as we go to the next slide, um, it says this. The last part that's highlighted says, it's not because of the friendship, the relationship, but because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So he will respond. A neighbor or a neighbor who can't be bothered, is inconvenienced, wants to stay behind the door, and doesn't really care about his friendship with you, even that man in this parable will answer your prayer, or answer the request, excuse me, and will help your request. 
Because of the shameless audacity. That word shameless audacity um, is another word, or another way to say it is like overboldness, like just extreme requests. Because it is an inconvenience, it is a bother. But here's the f- truth God doesn't see it that way when we present those to Him. He wants to hear our prayers, He wants the relationship, He wants us to knock on the door, and He wants to come into our hearts. So, I want to give an example of shameless audacity. Um, and so uh, I have a picture of a guy named Zha Zhang. Let's leave that up for a couple moments. Um, and this is a man who was born in Beijing, China. He, I heard him speak about uh, rejection a few years ago um, at a conference. And his story is this. His story starts off that as a six-year-old in Beijing, China, he was in a first-grade classroom. And in that classroom, the teacher had a... a an exercise that she wanted to do. She wanted to buy gifts and, the, and the give gifts to the kids, and she also wanted to teach the kids the value of saying nice things about other people, about other classmates. And so what she says is, I bought gifts for all of you, and when someone says nice, something nice about you, you're going to come up, you're going to grab the gift that's for you, and then you're going to say something nice about someone else, and then it's going to keep going. And in the words of Zha Zheng, he says, what could go wrong? What went wrong is that Ja was one of three kids that no one had anything nice to say about. So they're sitting there, the three of them. The teacher says, is there anything anyone can say nice about these three? And it's silent. He's standing up in front of the class. I said sitting. He was standing up in front of the class, utterly embarrassed, hurt, and ultimately feeling rejected by his peers. He continues the story that when he was 11, or excuse me, 14, he had a lot of passion and drive. He wanted to start a company like Microsoft. He saw, he learned about Bill Gates. He's like, I want to be like him. And so he shared how he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he wanted to do these things. And yet, in his words, the six-year-old Zha Zhang was on his shoulder telling him that he was going to be rejected, that he wasn't good enough, capable enough was not going to be able to fulfill his dreams. So he found out about, he was learning, how do I get over rejection? And he found out a Canadian had put together a, what's called rejection therapy, and there were 30 days of it. And it was different tasks that you would do that you knew the answer would be no. And so in the doing of it, you train yourself that rejection isn't actually as bad as it seems. So he, just, he starts a blog, a video blog, and he says, instead of 30 days, I'm going to go 100 days, and he records videos of his story. So let's give a couple of examples. One example is day two, is you show up, you eat at a fast food restaurant. Again, he knows he's going to get rejected, right? So you know how you get a refill of your drinks after you, you know, you know oh, I want to get a refill before I go. He just walks up and he says, well, I really love your burgers. Can I get a burger refill? They're like, a a burger refill? Like, yeah, no, I really like your burgers. Can I have a burger refill? And they say, no, we don't do that. He's like, okay, no problem, right? And he knows he's going to get rejected, but it trains him, and he learns the first time he does these types of things, he realized how embarrassed he was and how ashamed he was. And then he learns, if I just ask for stuff, sometimes people say yes. There's another story about how he um, asks a police officer if he could drive in the car. In the front of the car, not the back, as his words say. He said yes. There's another time where he went up to an airport, like a small airport, you know, like just a local one, and was like, just found a random person. Hey, can I fly your plane? Do you, do you know how to fly? Nope. 
all right, come on, let's go. And he goes, and the guy teaches him how to fly the plane. And his, in his pursuit of being rejected, he found out that sometimes if you make a request with shameless audacity, with an overboldness, sometimes people say yes. And so there's one example I want to share. And so let's, uh, we'll hold off on the picture. Let's keep it on this one for a moment. And it's a story of him knocking. It was day six, I believe it is. He knocks on the door of a random person's house, never met before. And he shows up and he's got shin guards on. He's got athletic shorts and a shirt and he's holding a soccer ball. Knocks on the door. And the person who owns the house opens the door. And Ja just goes, hi, uh, I'm doing a special project. Is it okay if I can play soccer by myself in your backyard? The guy's like, you want to play soccer in my backyard? Yeah, yeah, it's for a special project. Just want to know if you let me do that. He looks back and he's like, yeah, sure, come on. He goes back there and all of a sudden, Zha Zhang is sitting in the back and he's like, he'll share in the, in the sermon we watch, it's like, or the message. He's like, I didn't think this through. How do I play soccer by myself in someone's backyard? So he has like the soccer ball and he just kind of kicks in. We can show the picture now. And he, he has a photo of himself like he did it, right? And it's just this moment of like, why did you do that? He actually asks the gentleman afterwards, why did you say yes? And the guy says, it was such an off-the-wall request. How could I say no? <laughs> These are examples of overboldness. If you want to find out more, uh, he wrote a book called Rejection Proof. And, he wrote, um, and then he also has his uh, website, rejectiontherapy.com. It's all the videos I talked about. There's a hundred of them. Um, they're all on there. But what he learned was that we are so often afraid of rejection when in reality, when we are rejected by someone, if we ask for something, it has less to do with us, the one who's rejected, and does more with the one who is rejecting. Why? Because Zha Zhang says, I can say the exact same thing to 10 different people. Five might say yes, five might say no. I'm no different. I'm still the same. It depends on how the people receive it, right? So I bring this up because... When we are overly bold in our prayers, we're afraid God's going to reject us, often. We say, God, we, we want this house, we want this job, we want our kids to do this. I mean, whatever it is, we make these big prayers, and we're afraid to pray bold prayers because we're afraid of God saying no, and we falsely understand a no as rejection, when in reality, often God's no is not rejection, but protection, Protection from what we think we want, but will end up leading us astray. Protection from what we may want as an idol, when reality is we don't need another idol, we need the Lord. What we look at here is what may feel like a rejection. Causes us to feel like that six-year-old jaw to say, well, I'm not going to pray big prayers. Because if I do, what if God says no? Does that mean he's rejected me? The difference is when we say, when we reject, or when we are rejected, it's about the other person, not about us. That's human to human, right? That's, that's flesh. When God says no, he's not rejecting you. In fact, if you've given your life to the Lord, you trust Jesus, it's impossible for him because he sees all of our brokenness, all of our sin, and when we confess our sins, he is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not about our goodness. It's not about our own abilities that we are received anymore. It's about Jesus and what he did and who he is, that we receive righteousness because Jesus became sin so that we who, or he became sin even though he knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So 
the man in the parable, let's go back to that. Because of the overboldness of the neighbor gives him what he's asking for. And Norval, uh, that uh, theologian, the commentator, I want to put this on the screen one more time, um, or another quotation from him, because this is part of the point. If even an imperfect human being, notwithstanding the inconvenience to which he is put, will arise at midnight to give a friend what he needs if he comes and asks him for help, how much more will God, the heavenly friend, who is perfect in love, listen to the sincere prayers and supplications of his children who are really in need? See, this parable is not a parable where we attribute the characteristics of the man to God. It's a parable in which we contrast them. Why? Because in a good design, in the contrast, we can see intentionality and meaning. So we're going to put together a couple of co a column here that will contrast the man in the parable to God as our heavenly father. So the man in the parable, we have those three things. He can't be bothered, that he wants to stay behind the closed door, and that he is not moved by the relationship. Now, our father can't be bothered either, but this is the different kind of bothered, right? Because if I say, oh, I can't be bothered to help you, it's because I'm annoyed. But if I'm so engaged with you that nothing you say is going to bother me because I love you and I want to spend time with you, there's nothing you can do that would create a bother. So he can't be bothered, not because he's annoyed, but because he loves you and he's engaged. When you want to spend time with someone and you love that person or those people, they make a request that doesn't bother you when we're in a, a healthy mindset. So he can't be bothered in the sense that he wants to be with us and he can't be bothered. Like, it doesn't bother him that we make requests. Number two is that he will open the door when not. He will open the door when not. Doesn't mean that he'll always give us what we want on the other side of the door. It's like the publisher's clearinghouse where they're like the 40-foot check. Not really. But, you know, those huge checks where it's like, hey, we have something that you want. It's when he knocks on the door, or when we knock on the door, he opens it. That doesn't mean we get what we want, but it means that it'll strengthen and deepen the relationship with who we need. It builds our relationship. Because prayer is not us informing God about what we need most. He already knows. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the cries of your heart. He knows the thoughts in your mind. He knows the struggles and temptations. He knows already. It's not about informing him of something he doesn't know. It's about communing with him so we can know him better. And because he wants that relationship, he is moved, number three. He is moved by the relationship we have with him. He wants to give good gifts to his kids. This is not on the screen, but um, I'm going to read just the... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 9 is on the screen, and then I'll read a few more. Verse 9 of Luke 9, 11 says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I'll stop there. We can leave it on the screen. Some of you know this already. Some of you don't, and that's this is why we're in it together, is as we study, we want to learn what we share, or share what we learn, excuse me. Ask, seek, and knock. We've heard those before, many of us who have a relationship with God and know God's word. Um, it's found a lot in Matthew 7, 7 is the, is the verse that we most often attribute it to or because it's the same, um, you know, it's the same verse, we just know the Matthew version more. But those words, ask, seek, and knock are in the present tense and it's a continuous tense. What that means is it's 
asking, not a one-time ask and I'm done. It's asking. It's seeking. It's knocking. It's being persistent in prayer, even when we don't see what's happening or we don't see that something is happening. Now, this is not on the, on the slides, but I want to just close out the parable here uh, or the section here in verse 11 and, uh, through 13. It says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the point of the parable. This is the point of when it says, teach us how to pray. Jesus gives a prayer. He says, pray in this way. Then he gives a parable to help us understand. And both of those combine to show that the point is that even if a man who doesn't want to do something to help will help, even if an earthly father who is asked to give a, a, a fish and knows not to give a serpent or to give an, a, a scorpion, even if that earthly father knows, how much more will our heavenly father give us and answer our request and give us what we need. How much more? And that contrast, the contrast of what the man in the parable would do, like any good design, it's in the contrast that we can often see depth of intention and meaning. So Jesus sets up a bad example who still does the good thing, so we can have all the more faith that the godly good example of our Father will do something even better. So as we close this morning, there's a couple things we need to unpack. One, what do you do if in that example, God talks about, you know, he starts the Lord's prayer with Father in heaven. And it ends with the idea of a father giving good gifts. What do you do if you don't have a good relationship with father? What if father is a bad word to you or parent? Where do you go with that? Because then you attribute all the negative, uh, um, the negative connotations that you felt about father and apply that to God. That might be what we would naturally do. But we even saw in this parable that we don't need to apply something negative, a negative example to God. In fact, a negative example through the contrast shows us all the greater who God is. So if you are struggling and you have a heartache or a wound, maybe you never met your father, maybe it was abusive and horrible, maybe it was just something where they just didn't pretend you were around. Maybe there are other examples with father being a negative connotation. Like in this parable, we don't attribute those attributes to God. Instead, we use the idea of who father is and we apply that to God and say that that, that, that wound that we have, that hole that we have, that heartache that we experience can only be resolved and healed and made whole when the word father doesn't mean our earthly father who may have hurt us or ignored us, but when it becomes our heavenly father who is with us and loves us, who created us, and he knows you, he loves you, he's with you, and he wants us to knock on the door because he wants to let us in and hang out and spend time with us. 
He wants to give us blessing, not always what we need, but excuse me, not always what we want, but what we do need. And so we need to unpack for some of us the idea of fathers when we need to, to, to walk through. Some of us, we, we ask, we're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. It still feels like no one's home. It feels like we have our candy bags on Halloween in our costumes trying to put on a mask to pretend that everything's okay. We're hiding behind it and we are waiting for God to give us something. It seems like he shut the lights out and he's hiding in the corner saying, don't bother me. What I want to encourage you with is the idea that we don't stop asking. We don't stop seeking. We don't stop knocking. The problem that we have, and we, all, we can all do this, is that what's worse, we, we think that we can't be angry with God. And we can. We see the book of Psalms, that there are passages and throughout the scriptures, but specifically in Psalms, we see times when you could express anger towards him. Do you know what's worse than expressing anger to God in prayer? Having so much apathy that you stop praying. When the relationship is so cold that you just don't even care and you don't want to engage, that's when you know whether it's a marriage, whether it's kids, whether it's the Lord. That's when you know the relationship is really in trouble. So keep asking when you don't receive right away. Keep seeking even when you're not finding it. Keep knocking because the door will be opened. But sometimes if we're only following God or asking or seeking or knocking because we want God to fulfill what we think we need, like an idol or something in our lives, and there's a chance that he won't so that we don't pursue the idol, but we pursue him. And maybe there's something that does seem like it's in line with God's will. It's a healing. It's something that, God, why would you not want this to happen? I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. I want to see this happen. And it's a good thing. And when that comes, I, I don't have the answers for that. I can't say why God protects Daniel in the lion's den, but then Stephen dies being stoned. I can't explain why some people in the Bible are rescued and some aren't. But I can't ex- say that both or those examples are ones in which God is faithful and the people know who he is, that they're willing to go through whatever it takes to have a relationship with him and to be with him because they know how much he loves them. So I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do encourage us to recognize that in this parable, we have to let go and sacrifice these false understandings of God as being not wanting to be bothered and all those things. We need to let that go and see the contrast that instead it's through the design that we see the differences in this parable are what shows us how great God is. Because even people who don't know the Lord or people who, um, in this case, they don't want to help out, if they can do the right thing, how much more will our Heavenly Father do this right thing? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that um, you hear our prayers. We thank you, Lord, that when we pray, we don't just pray one thing about something we 
are urgently needing, God. We are asking you consistently. Lord, we recognize that we don't just moderately look for you to, to answer our prayers. We seek it out just as we would seek a lost treasure in our own lives. And with that same fervency that we would seek for something valuable to us that we lose, we seek you. Lord, we recognize that we are knocking on the door saying, let us in, help us to know you are there. And God, we know that when we do this, we will receive, we will find, and we will have the door open, even if it's not what we originally wanted. We know that it's who we need, and that's you. Lord, I pray that you would um, teach us to pray with relying on the relationship with you and with great persistence and perseverance to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and in so doing, keep drawing closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.